Do you, do you remember there was a remember there was a, a guy that did uh, U.S. history in a minute with slides? Do you remember that thing? Yeah, he just you know one minute in United States history. I feel like something like that. You know, <laughs> two thousand years in three weeks. Um, and and the principle is that the church is not um, as stable as some of us would imagine. The church is extremely fluid and constantly uh, in, in need of reform and restoration. Uh, the more I think about it, the more my thesis would be something like this, that whenever the gospel gets lost, it's time for restoration and it's time for renewal. And, uh, and the gospel is that, you know, that fragile, uh, in fact, I'm gonna preach on it Sunday, um, we always think amazing grace. I think it's essential grace. And, and I'm struck by looking at 2,000 years of church history, how, uh, how hostile some folks are to the gospel, and yet how fragile the gospel is. So uh, that's what I, I, I think is the, is the kind of thread that, that ties together uh, 2,000 years of church history. Um, as we started, point was that, as most of us, we don't get up in the morning and say, I think I'll change today. We change as a result of factors that are outside of ourselves, usually. And as far as the church is concerned, uh, on the very first week we were together, I listed some of the factors that have caused the church to change. Uh, political factors, economic factors, uh, social factors, migration factors, uh, anthropology and discovery factors, uh, biblical studies and those kinds of factors have all had an effect on the change. Now, uh, one other thing I think is very important. Whenever the church changes and moves in one direction, there's always, it seems to me historically, a movement the other way. Uh, I describe it as the church has always been on both ends of the parade. And, uh, and, and uh, there's always action and reaction. Now, and we have experienced that even in this congregation uh, a few years ago uh, when the church made a momentous change uh, to ordain gay and people. Uh, while that is a move most of us saw as progressive and moving forward, there was always a, a counter-movement uh, to revert back. The same thing was true in the discovery of biblical source criticism. Uh, when, when the church uh, explored scripture back in the 50s and, and uh, adopted a concept called source criticism, there was a responding reaction to that in literalism again. And, uh, and we saw something called the Lutheran's Alert, a whole branch of Lutheranism that reacted against that. Uh, a few years ago, there was a group called Lutherans Alert, but I always try to remind them, hey, you're not very original. Um, that, that title was already used clear back in the 50s by people that opposed uh, source criticism. So th th that, was the, uh, that was the point of the first time we really had it together. Uh, then we looked at next, uh, we looked at the early church through the Book of Acts, and we saw that even the church wasn't barely a generation old 
and already there is conflict. There's conflict between two parties of the church. One I described as the trained party, those people who followed the Apostle Peter, and the Pauline party, those people who followed the Apostle Paul. And the issue, of course, was uh, kind of an interesting issue. If you're going to convert to Christianity, which it wasn't called Christianity, it was called the way in those days, um, do you first have to become Jewish first? Now, remember that most of the first century converts to Christianity were Jewish. They came out of Judaism. But, but as the church moved out into the Gentile world, the question became, well, if you're going to convert or you're going to accept the way, do you first have to become Jewish? Or, or as it is in the Bible, you first have to become circumcised and then be baptized. So those are the two rites, two rituals. And, uh, and the, the Petrine people said, yes, you do. And the Paulian people said, no, you move directly from your Gentile status through baptism. Um, in, into the church, and, and you remember how that particular conflict was resolved. It was resolved when when Peter had a dream. Huh? Peter had this dream and envisioned this huge net full of all kinds of creatures, which uh, he interpreted as being the you know the variety that made up the church, and and uh, and uh, he described his uh, he described his dream and at the Council of Jerusalem. The very first council of the church, it was decided in favor of the Pauline party. So there, I mean, the church immediately is, is, into, a, is into a conflict. Now, fortunately, uh, the church did not react to conflict the way Lutherans typically do. Um, they, they didn't form another synod huh? <laughs> uh, or, or something like that. Uh, but they were able to, they were able to resolve it uh, as it's understood through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, I suggested to you that in, in Christian history, uh, there are two critical dates, uh, and, and the first is 311 AD, and the second is 1781. We rarely ever put AD next to more modern dates. Uh, and, and, and what these two dates represent are critical changes in Christianity. Before 311 AD, 311 AD, the Edict of Milan, um, the conversion of Constantine, before that time, before Constantine is converted and legalizes Christianity, that's the critical change, this is legalizing Christianity. Before that day, uh, Christianity is an outlawed community, even though it's voluntary. So that if you accept Christianity, uh, you are placing yourselves outside the protection of the state. It's voluntary. You may do that. But that you lose all your civil rights before 311. When Constantine is converted, what happens? Well, everyone, everyone in the whole realm is Christian automatically. In fact, the stories go, you know, there were, there were religious people just simply walking through communities, throwing buckets of water on people and baptizing them. You're all baptized. 
there's no there's no process then of, of initiation that is necessary. Now the the second so rem remember those conditions. We are we are outlawed, but we are voluntary before 311. After 311, what happens? We have non-voluntary. You just you're in. But you are under the protection of the state, and what we have created is state church. And uh, and many of you whose uh, ancestors were immigrants to the United States, okay, came out of a state church, Europe, state church, Scandinavia. In fact, one of the reasons many of the people came here was to avoid state church. Uh, it, and it, it usually took the form of taxation, um, that everyone was taxed to support the work of the church. Now that's true up until fairly recently. In fact, even in France today, in France today there is a church tax still, um, but it's not to support churches as religious institutions, but to support churches as historic museums within the community. And, and that's how that's how it's pulled off. So there's still in France today a, a tax on that the church collects through the government. Uh, that's true also in Sweden, by the way. Norway it was until very very recently, and um, so that's the creation of, of state church right here. But the second the second critical day in church history, uh, date date is 1781, the U.S. Constitution, because the U.S. Constitution was revolutionary and, and, and in one sense earth-shattering that you suddenly have what? Voluntary Christianity, voluntary Christianity, under the protection of the state. You are protected, we have religious freedom, as we want to talk that way, um, although sometimes one wonders. But, but we do have uh, that same set of circumstances then uh, have, have radically changed. Now, w what effect is that? Well, the, the effect of that is, is, is uh, you, you know about it, you feel it, you've experienced it. Uh, before 311 AD, to become Christian was a long process, three years typically, of Christian initiation. Um, why? They, because for, for two reasons. One, we had made a radical change from Judaism. And, and number two, we have to guarantee the, the, the protection of those people uh, and the communities of faith from the civil authorities. Um, we, uh, we had sponsoring, for example, um, we had a, a long period of catechesis uh, to guarantee that, you know, Don, if you're going to become a part of the way, we have to test your sincerity, huh? And we have to test your, not only sincerity, but your allegiance to this group. We, we had to make sure that you were not um, some kind of Roman saboteur coming into the community and, you know, finding out well, who's in and who's out. You say, well, gee, that's that's kind of old. But remember, remember, in my lifetime, your lifetime, 
Um, the immigration authorities of the United States infiltrated Bible studies in the state of Arizona uh, to, to find out who uh, or where immigrants who were coming out of Central America and, and Mexico were being sheltered by communities uh, as they made their way to Canada. Do you remember that period of time? That's not very long ago. That's not very long ago at all. And uh, because it was a it was a railroad, sort of underground railroad type thing, <coughs> taking uh, people out of Central America through the United States up into Canada for for religious freedom. And uh, U.S. immigration authorities infiltrated uh, two Lutheran congregations, interestingly enough, uh, that were instrumental in that in that process of refuge, uh, transportation of refugees. Okay, um, what I did is I gave you a, a, a listing of, of something called the right of Hippolytus. And uh, if you look at that, now Hippolytus, as I think I said, one of the, one of the differences between today and, and more ancient times um, was we have instantaneous communication. I, mean, I could go on the internet and find out what's going on at Christ Lutheran. I could go, uh, you know, for a peace Lutheran, and they could find the same. Uh, but but you did not have that. You had fragments of documents that were in existence from various communities of faith. Uh, the Didache, for example, or the Rite of Hippolytus. Now the, the mistake might be to assume that that's was done everywhere. Uh, just the same as I used as an example last week, if somebody discovered a, a church bulletin from Our Savior's Lutheran, they might assume that that's normative uh, in practice in the whole city of Menominee for all Lutherans. Huh? And what a mistake that would be. Huh? Um, yeah, I, I just came off, I had, I had a, I filled in at a time last Sunday, and I had probably the, the, the worst church experience in my recent life. It was terrible. It was chaotic. There were kids running everywhere, and kids screaming and yelling, and there was absolutely no liturgy, no order. I mean, it was just a disaster. And I'm assuming, you know, somebody somebody experienced that and, and said, well, you know, well, that's Lutheranism. Um, but you see, that's one of the advantages we have, I think, with the internet. We can find out what is normative versus what is not normative. Um, but when you see the right of Hippolytus, that's a process. It prescribes a process that was probably used in one segment of the church in Egypt. And uh, it's a surviving document. But, but we could make an assumption that probably in the early church, before 311 AD, there was a, an extensive process in place because some of the parts of it still have trickled down and are part of our process today. I mean, uh, it, it's not accidental, I think, that if you ask most congregations, well, how long do kids go to catechism? The normative is something like three years. Right? Well, why? 
Are we slow learners? Or, you know, well, that was what the early church practiced, the three-year process. We still have sponsors. Uh, we still teach by mentoring, in a sense. I think, sure, we call them what, guides, confirmation guides, or something like that. We, we assign candidates, what called the catechumen, to people who are already baptized. Uh, in fact, we, we divide the whole process into two realms, content and style. So for content, usually pastors or catechists huh, are, are asked to teach our kids today the sort of the content of faith. Huh? And we usually have a textbook for that. Uh, called a catechism, interestingly enough, uh, even though what catechism simply means questions and answers, uh, e even though um, the catechism textbook might not be the shape of questions and answers, but we, we borrow that. Um, we, we call that group of people confirmands, some of the people that are can candidates. Um, I suggested last week that even the process of enrollment or the beginning process, we still have in many congregations, we, we call it cradle roll, I think. But when somebody was born or somebody signed the book of enrollment, that they wish to now become a candidate for baptism, uh, the congregation prayed for them. And we have a liturgy, uh, if we look at the occasional services book, a liturgy of enrollment for candidates. We don't practice it here, I don't think, do we? But what we would ideally do is when a you know, bunch of kids, what are what, seven? Sixth grade, is that? Seventh grade. Yeah, seventh and eight. Okay, when seventh graders desire uh, to be part of that catechetical class, we would enroll them with a liturgy of enrollment. Huh? Um, it's, it's moved to that level, even though in our recent history, when a kid was born, we enrolled them through something called cradle roll. And, uh, did we ask last week if there were like remnants? I forgot to look and see. Look and see in the archives. That'd be good archive material. Uh, we used to have these little poster thing on the sh cut out of a sheet, I think, and then ribbons underneath it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that all, all that comes out of the, the, the early church. And, uh, and and public examination. Were any of you examined publicly? You had it? Yeah, yeah. You were asked to go before the congregation and the pastor asked you questions, usually based on your memory work. Um, see, even, even though, I mean, this might surprise you, even though I can typically preach without notes, I cannot memorize things. Um, I can memorize my own material, but I could never be in a play because uh, I, couldn't, I just can't do that. Uh, and as a result, I was a very poor catechetical student back in my Missouri Synod congregation. There were, there were six of us, I remember, at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church. And, um, and, and I could never, re I could tell the pastor what something meant, but I didn't, I couldn't memorize it. And there was this kid, the only other boy in the class was Ronald Schwizo. Ready? <laughs> I remember him well. I mean, obviously, it was a German congregation. And Ronald Schwizo was uh, the kind of kid you hated. You know? <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, his, his book, 
this blue Dell catechism. I mean, it was immaculate, and mine looked like somebody threw it under a car or something. <laughs> I hated it. And, uh, and, and, and we had to stand up in front of the church and, and, and recite from memory the meanings to the various things. And I, I couldn't do it. Um, and fortunately, um, fortunately, the pastor's name, his, his name was Lobach, and he was, a, again, um, he spoke with a German accent. Um, he, it would go something like this. What does this mean? <laughs> so, uh, he took, he gave me a break. Uh, maybe because my father was going to be baptized the same day I was going to be confirmed, and he didn't want to lose an adult member because um, they were so rare in the church. But, but anyhow, public examination was a part of it, uh, and, and then remember that everything, everything leads to the baptismal event, which is going to be. Easter morning at the sunrise. There, there are three great holidays in the early church. They are Easter, second, Pentecost, and third, Epiphany. Christmas is a real latecomer. Um, some people have said, well, you know, fourth century at best, maybe not until even the 12th century. Um, but, but remember, some, each of those days um, of, of you know, Easter, Pentecost, and Epiphany, they have one thing in common. They, they all have the symbol of light. Huh? Light. Uh, Easter has the symbol of the sunrise. So as the sun comes up in the east, and you're doing, you're, you're, you're outside, you face the east because Christ is the light of the world. The light's coming to you. So, so there's the light image there. Um, it, 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 it's not accidental, by the way, that on Friday morning at 11 o'clock, when, when, when Mary Langford is brought into the church, she will lie beneath the Paschal candle because what the light of Christ she received in baptism has not gone out. Light perpetual shines upon her. Is that part of the liturgy? And so when a child is baptized, I think we, we still do a candle. And, and I, I haven't been around the homes on birthdays, but I'm guessing you all gather around a cake with candles on it. <laughs> Uh, mine looks like a bonfire. <laughs> it runs out. We ran out of cake. There's no space. But, but the image there is, you know, on your on your birthday, that's your that's your birth. Your, your, just as baptism is your birth. And, and uh, okay, so so we have Easter there, and, and sun is the image. The light. Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? Fire, you know, the, it's described as the uh, apostles um, received light, a fire. Huh? Uh, and what about Epiphany? Well, that's the fun one because Epiphany uh, is borrowed from you know the, sort of the pagan calendar. What happens at the uh, at the solstice? The, 
My wife always describes uh, it, it is the first day of spring. <laughs> because the, the, the light now over begins to overcome the darkness. Isn't that a beautiful kind of image? Um, so that uh, so that on Epiphany, light the, the light of the day takes uh, is, has conquered the darkness of night. And, and again, there's light, light imagery that is constant to all three of those. Uh, the, the reason that we now have three baptismal dates in the early church we had Easter morning, but as the church grew. Uh, an essential person, an essential person at baptisms was, was the bishop. Uh, now, as the church grew, it was very simple. Uh, the bishop couldn't be everywhere at once. Well, some bishops think they can. Uh, but, uh, you know, that tells you what I think of bishops. Uh, bishops were bishops. They were in possession of the post-baptismal blessing. You know, the, the part when a person comes out of the baptismal waters. And interestingly enough, even our liturgy calls for what? It calls for a blessing to be placed upon the head of a candidate. Now, it's very, very interesting. It's very prescribed. It's two hands upon one head. Huh? It isn't a pat on the head. It looks like an NFL huddle or something like that. Um, it's, it's a very specific gesture in which the bishop invokes the Holy Spirit as a part of baptism. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that required the bishop being there. Well, what, what happened, interestingly enough, first of all, then you need, you need three separate times during the year because he had a whole ton of candidates. I mean, the church is growing. So, so what happened was, interestingly enough, uh, in the early, early church, the bishop came to where the baptisms were. People came out of the baptismal waters. They received the epicletic, that means invoking the Holy Spirit blessing by the bishop. Uh, and, and then they went to, to eat Holy Communion. Okay? So you had baptism, the confirming act of the bishop, uh, confirmation, and, and then go eat Holy Communion. So baptism, confirmation, Holy Communion. Now, uh, there's a little change that's going to hear that Reformation thing that's a result of, of, of a factor. If you can't, if the bishop can't get to you, what happens? You got to go see the bishop, okay? So, so now the order, and, and and sometimes you couldn't do that right away. So now the order went baptism, confirmation when you can get to where the bishop was, and and, and communion. So it went baptism, communion, and, and confirmation when you can get there. Isn't that very very interesting? that little change in what is called the initiation sequence. Now look how many times that has changed in your lifetime. Because I'm guessing most of you, Steve, you were baptized. Um, and then what happened? Then you went to the Sunday school, which is really part of the information. <coughs> okay? And then you were confirmed. 
and, and oh, then you then you could get communion. But in our lifetime, it goes something like this: baptism, communion, huh? and confirmation later. It's very very interesting. And people say, well, I don't like that. Well, you know, join the club because it's changed many many times in church history. The factors that changed it though were uh, in the early church. Bishop had to be, he was the, old, the bishop was the only one that could do the confirming. In the Roman Catholic Church today, only the bishop, only the bishop can preside at confirmations. Now, in Eau Claire, we have a, I don't know, what, six, six Catholic Church, all big. So the bishop, instead of having to go to all six congregations, you know, like St. James and like Newman and like, you know, uh, what they do is they, they rent the Zorn Arena. <laughs> All the congregations come together at one big mass confirmation service, and the bishop comes and converts all the kids of Ohio. I think they do that at the St. Paul Cathedral. They do that? Probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just a logistical yeah. issue. But we don't have that requirement. You see that the bishop is the uh, sort of proprietor of, of the mm -hmm. epicletic blessing. Pastors are permitted to do that uh, because pastors are seen as in the line of apostles. Yeah. Uh, but it, don't you find that kind of interesting change that has happened? Okay, so now we're down to we're down to then this dramatic change that happens in the church when um, when Constantine is converted and and state church is created. And that, in a sense, gets us then to, to, to today. Um, this next period of time, it's going to go down until really uh, the most, for us probably, the most memorable of all Reformation moments is Luther's Reformation. So from roughly 312 AD, uh, down to what, 1519, Dave? 1517. Uh, the, the church is, it, it's, it's the medieval church. And, and uh, it's taking place in what is sometimes called the Middle Ages, sometimes called the Dark Ages. I think when I was a kid growing up, we, we learned that period to be the Dark Ages. Wow, what a, what a misnomer when you think about all the discoveries that took place during that period of time. Um, first of all, it was the rise of monasticism, for example. Um, monastic, the, the, the monastic orders, they, they were the first places of universities. That's where the learning did take place. But not only the learning, uh, in, in, in monasteries and, uh, and in convents, um, there, there's another side to monasteries and convents. Uh, Society had to place, had to have a place to, to deal with its kind of undesirable and non-marketable people. Huh? It, it's people that were disabled. It's people that were challenged intellectually. Uh, and so, where do you send them? Send them to monasteries. And if you have a daughter that is not marketable and marriageable, what do you do with it? Send her to the convent, huh? So, so convents and monasteries, in one sense, while they were they were the intellectual centers of communities, 
they were also the repositories for some of the uh, the, the least desirable people. So I, I, I always used to tell my colleagues at the university, you know, if you if you ever have any f highfalutin ideas about your importance, remember where you came from. <laughs> you know, you came from the kind of repository of the dregs of society. Um, that's kind of humble. That's humble beginning. Yeah. You know? Pretty humble beginning. So, so it's not it, it's not the dark ages in that sense. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of things going on. And, and in fact, for just a moment or two, I, I want you to think about that period of time, just from your own understanding of church, you know, world history, church history. What what's going on? What's going on in that period of time? Um, it's it's in a time of incredible social change. Uh, I, I would uh, I would suggest that the, the what we call the Middle Ages, even though it's a long period of time, uh, had just about as dramatic um, change and uh, and revolution as we've experienced even in our lifetime. You know? I mean, just think technologically what what happened in that period of time. Uh, what the movable type nothing else. I mean, if you look for a technological change, uh, Gutenberg invents type, what happens? Well, now you can disseminate information. Yeah, now you can disseminate information. What's happening in our time? Computer, word processor. I, I have always said that, you know, Luther would embrace computers because Luther, he recognized that movable type made it possible for him to disseminate his biblical translations. Now, I mean, he, he was not a cultural despiser. In, in that sense, he was a cultural embracer. Uh, and, and, and so you have this technological change going on in the Middle Ages. What else is going on? Art. Art and music. Art and music is developing, and, and not only developing uh, 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 in the courts, bec becoming uh, a possibility for common folk. You have you have a, a rise in the middle class. Beginning. I mean, the old feudal system was basically a contract, right, between the king and the peasants. Uh, what was the contract? Um, you provide me with food and work my land and I'll always leave the drawbridge down for you. You know, that's simplifying, but in a sense, I'll protect you, and, and the contract is that, that you provide. So you have this uh, sort of symbiotic relationship between, uh, between the king and the, and the peasants. Well, what happens then when the middle class begins to emerge? When the, when the middle class begins to emerge, um, first of all, you don't need the king's protection in the same way that you used to. And number two, you begin to use the goods that you produce to trade. And, and, and if you're producing goods, you also have to have the technology that allows you to produce goods. So you have a, a rise in, in metals. Um, Luther's, Luther's own family, I mean, they were, they were what, metalsmiths, coppersmiths? 
miners that provided ore. Yeah, and, and it was tuned into tools and instruments of war, but but you have an emerging middle class. You had the emergence of guilds, of, think of labor unions or gatherings together of, of, of skilled people happening during this time. You, you begin to have a global economy, in this, even though the globe is rather small, but you have a trading class beginning. Uh, so I provide, uh, the goods that I used to provide to the king, I found out, well, I can provide them to my family, but I can also trade with them. And, and so you have a trading class beginning to develop. Now, this is all during this period of time. And, uh, and then you also have then uh, a breakdown in, in church state and, uh, and, and an emerging, an emerging sort of anti-clericism. People are not people are not requiring the same protection or, or services of their clergy that they used to. Uh, so you have just sort of a general change in the culture that has an effect then with, within the church. So Luther's Reformation, we, we sometimes think it's isolated, Luther's Reformation was part of a cultural reformation that's going on at this time. And I listed a few of the things um, that, that were going on in, uh, in, the, in the Middle Ages. And I listed, I think, what, six or seven? Uh, the rise of guilds, the development of city-states. Um, the church, excuse me, Europe is becoming less and less rural in the sense, and, and more urbanized. Marketing centers are beginning to, to develop. Now, if, if you think about this um, and compare this to what's happening today, because I think we're into, we're right in the middle of an incredible uh, reformation today, a cultural reformation, economic reformation, I mean, uh, technological reformation. Uh, if the last election, uh, didn't demonstrate anything to us. It demonstrated us a thing: uh, the, 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 the rise of, of rural power. Even though it's smaller, I mean, I, I think I think Democrats didn't pay attention to what's going on, for example, in Western states, and, and uh, you know the power. So that the rural areas, in one sense, have become almost more urbanized. <laughs> you know, the family farm, like as we want to romanticize it, is really an industrial empire. Conagra is not family farm. Uh, uh, Doan's Bean Company is it's not family farm. I mean, well, I like to romantically think about it that way, but it's not so. It, it is. Uh, so we, we're, we're in the middle of this incredible uh, social revolution today. World economy. Um, and, uh, and, and immigration patterns. Uh, I was watched uh, Wisconsin last night, as most of us did. Did you see the lineup from St. Mary's College? They, they had their their starting seven were international. 
there were there were no uh, there were no U.S. players in the starting seven. There were see New Zealanders, Slovakians, two Australians, one Brit, one Spaniard. And I mean, I'm thinking, wow, that's that's one team, you know. Um, more and more, we have become we have become international, and as a result, that change then is occurring with even within our church. Remember, immigration patterns are one of the factors that cause the church to change, and it caused the church to change in the Middle Ages just as well. When people were moving into the cities, then the city churches became a center rather than sort of rural entities. Uh, I'm struck by, uh, some of you know Bob and Jane Hoyt, who used to live here and now live in, in New York, but they they live uh, a great deal of time in England. And, and I have gone there, and the parish church, um, where they where they go in England, um, St. Saint, Saint, uh, Dennis is the name of it, their, their, their priest, the first priest came there in 1560, or excuse me, 1065. Uh -huh. 1065. I think I mentioned that in a little bit. 1065, and, and that church has been in constant use since 1065, including the war. Uh -huh. we, we, something old here is how old. <laughs> yeah. I always think it's kind of funny when you go to an antique sale, and I'm, I'm seeing all the stuff I grew up with. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, um, but but antiques in, in antiques in Europe and in England, particularly, uh, a far different different entity. So uh, it's not accidental then that what Luther was about in 1517 was simply part of the whole, what the whole culture was about. Although his component, uh, when he, when he uh, in, in, in one sense, empowered the middle class, and his, uh, his changes, which we'll talk about next week, um, they, they, they were dramatic in particular. Um, one of the things that I noticed, uh, I noted for you, um, the, the medieval church, um, once the once the once the church became legalized and and became under the under the powers of the state, once you create state church, the question then becomes excuse me, um, where where are where are the boundaries between state and where are the boundaries between church, and that particularly surrounds the issue of who appoints bishop. Huh. How do, you, how do you get a bishop? Now remember, um, and this is true even today, um, St. Joe's Catholic Church next door it is, not, is not owned by the congregation of St. Joe's. Um, the deed for St. Joe's Church is where? Lacrosse. It's in the cross diocese, and who is the owner? The bishop. The bishop owns St. Joe's. And we, that's important to, important to know, because if we're in any kind of dialogue with them, as you know, I was for many, many years in University of Lutheran, which was 
services in the ecumenical religious center, and you have something like that here with the ministry. The ministry property is not owned locally. It's, it's owned in the cross. The bishop's name is on that part of the deed. Um, University Lutheran Church in Menominee, excuse me, in Eau Claire, is the only congregation in the United States, the only building in the United States that's owned by two congregations, one of which is really owned by the bishop. There are no other joint-owned facilities that maintain two distinct congregations. Well, very unusual. It's been going since 1972. So people tell me, well, it won't work. Well, actually it does. It does. But you have to understand that the decisions that are made by Newman community in uh, Eau Claire for that congregation are all have to be endorsed by the Bishop of the Cross. Okay? The question then becomes, uh, well, how do you become a bishop <laughs> in the Middle Ages? You know, bishops are pretty powerful folk because not only do they own church buildings, they own what? Church land. Because the, the land that surrounds the church was used to support the church. So bishops became enormous, enormous landholders throughout Europe. And and that's a sought-after job. So so how do you get it? Well, how do you get most things politically? You either get it through devious means. Mm -hmm. uh, assassinations work very well. They're very, they're very efficient. You just knock off your competition. And, and that, you know, our history uh, is, uh, history in Europe is, is a horrible example of, you know, religious assassinations. Uh, the the Medici's, well, there's a wonderful group. Um, <laughs> and, and, and what you did is you, you, uh, you attempted to influence the king who appointed the bishops uh, any way you can. You, you have incredible amounts of power. Luther came to understand that because even though he became outlawed, he did have protection of some civil authorities and was able to able to exist. So, so the corruption uh, of the bishops uh, is is what happened. Um, the use of the vernacular. There, there's a there's a concept in Catholicism. There was a concept in Catholicism that what was required for salvation was to be in the presence of the working of the work. In other words, if you were if you were in the presence of the Mass, you received the benefits of the Mass. And, and, and so it wasn't really necessary after 311 for you to know anything. Uh, it was done for you. You, know, you, were you were baptized, and when you died, you'd be buried. Uh, Marriages, marriages even began to, uh, excuse me, became a part of the, of the state sort of licensure. Uh, the state became involved in, 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 in marriages. Why? Because couples became 
eligible to be taxed. Sometimes we have a we have a, a notion that in the United States, in particular, well, first of all, all marriage laws are regulated by the states, so our regulations are different than Minnesota's or Iowa's, right? That the the state the state does not care if the couple love each other. That's, it's not a requirement. Uh, it's it's not in the in the in the statute. What 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 happens when you get married is what, David? When you when when you married, you became a taxable entity. That's the state's concern. When when you become a taxable entity, uh, can and can file jointly. You know you want to think of it in that fashion. That's the requirement of the, and so what happens in divorce is what? You no longer, you cease to be a, a joint taxable entity. Um, David? It's more than economic though. The, yeah. the, the family law statutes begin with an introduction saying family is fundamental to the yeah. structure of society. It, it did. For stability of society. Stability of society. Mm-hmm. But it, it didn't require love or anything else. No. It just sort of started out with that. That's an entity. Yeah. And uh, but I, and I wonder now. I haven't looked at family law for a long, long time, David. That's, it's, it's that introduction is still, still there. Mm-hmm. So because in in Wisconsin you can be married under two headings, civil or religious. And it was there was a time in Wisconsin when you had to file if you were going to be a religious presider. You had to file your ordination papers. Did? Uh, interesting thing now in Wisconsin is if the couple thinks you have authority, you do. You do? Yeah. I mean, my son has presided at two weddings, and I keep telling him, now wait a minute. You know? And, and, uh, I just saw a sign at a jewelry store in Eau Claire. Um, Elope now, we have. Um, but you can see what, what happens then. The, in, in one sense, now the power of the church is sort of eroding. Huh? Uh, in, in, in one sense, in the Middle Ages, the power of the church is beginning to erode. Um, one of the chief things that happened, as I as I uh, listed there. Um, the vernacular just disappears in the mass. The mass becomes standardized in that there, you know, the mass is now in Latin. And we're going to see that next week when we talk about the religious reforms of Luther. Luther, one of his three chief things that he did was restore the vernacular. You know? Now, you say, well, people, if the mass is in Latin, who knows what's going on? It's not important to know what's going on. It's important to be in the presence of what's going on, in the in the midst of the working of the work. Now, Luther didn't understand it that way. Very, very slowly, um, script, well, scripture became unavailable uh, because there, there was just so little of it. It, it was a property typically of monasteries because the manuscripts, that's where they were copied. And, and, and they weren't very accurate if you think about it. Who's copying manuscripts in, in, in monasteries? Illiterate people that can't read, you know? 
you got you've got monks that look and see what this looks like and try to match it over here. Well, if they miss a point or two or a misspelling, you know, and, and that's what was happening. So the scriptures that were passed around on these huge uh, codices or, or books, um, very few people had them. Very few local congregations had them. Um, preaching disappeared, just pretty much disappeared. Uh, and what, what happened was what? Uh, the, the point that we would call the liturgy of the word really became some admonition maybe from the bishop or disappeared in entirety. In our lifetime, we, we've seen the restoration of preaching in the Roman Catholic Church. That was the, that was the dramatic change of Vatican II. Vatican II did what? Restored the vernacular, restored preaching. So, so Father next door, in what 1961, suddenly woke up one morning and said, "God, I got to preach." <laughs> well, where do you go? You don't go to Catholic seminaries because they weren't teaching it. Where do you go? There were two places: Presbyterian cemetery, cemeteries, cemeteries, there's a, uh, and, and Lutheran seminaries. Yeah. yeah. So we had. We had Roman Catholics going to Lutheran seminaries to learn preaching so they could take it back to their seminaries. I think that's very interesting because preaching had disappeared. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about good preaching versus bad preaching. I'm talking about any kind of preaching. But, but what, uh, what was restored was what, what is called textual preaching. Because the Roman Catholics, one of the restorations of the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy was to restore the, the, the liturgical year. So, okay, so we've got that. Now, the, the most dramatic change that had happened uh, in the Middle Ages in the, in, the, uh, in the ways of the Roman Catholic Church is, is the Mass moved from being sacrament to sacrifice. The best way that I can, I think, illustrate that is with, a, with two arrows. In, in sacrifice, the action always goes up. I lift something up to God to, to appease God or, or to make a gesture toward God. Is that a way of understanding that? But the action is always up. I lift up something. Uh, why? So that God will be satisfied, God will be appeased, or I can receive a benefit. In, in sacrament, the action is now. God acts to us or for us. And, and, and that's a dramatic difference. So, that what was happening in the Middle Ages by the church was the Mass. The Mass was being offered to God for something, for someone. Now, um, quickly, when, when you're building a large, when you're building a large structure like St. Peter's, it doesn't take too long to figure out they got to pay for it. Um, 
And, and so, and so, what do you do? You you slowly but surely begin to devise systems by which what the church was doing might be used to bring in income. And thus, you have something called the stable indulgences that the mass was being sold to people, masses were being sold to people so that members of their family might receive, and here's the key word, benefit, or beneficial, huh? might receive a benefit. Um, and, and, uh, and so throughout Europe, you unleashed a, a whole herd huh, in every community of indulgence sellers that were running around and, and approaching families and people saying, hey, wait, there's a way, there's a way to get your no good uncle out of purgatory or out of hell uh, if we can build up enough merits, then, then he could, as Tetzel, one of the great sellers said, we can spring him. Huh? <laughs> when, when a coin in the coffer rings, let's see if I can get this right. When a coin in a coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> Isn't that, that, that was the, that was the kind of slogan. Sometimes we think Madison Avenue is a relatively new concept. Um, and, 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 and this is, this is really, this, it, it is one issue uh, that set Luther off. It was, it was this issue, as we will see. Because probably the, the most dramatic change that Luther made um, theologically, not practically, but theologically, is probably the restoration of sacrament. Now, I said practically. Uh, uh, theologically. Practically, what well, we have two other issues, restoration of preaching, and number three, uh, the restoration of the vernacular. So if you want to sum something up, uh, th th there it is. Uh, some people say Vatican II probably accomplished after how many hundreds of years what, what Luther intended in 1517. That, that Vatican II was the was fulfillment of Lutheran Reformation. But remember what I said at the very beginning of our hour. Every time there's a, an action, there's a corresponding what? Reaction. <laughs> So right on the heels of Luther was something called the Council of Trent, which said, wait, 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 we've got to retrench. So even today, um, I think his name is Lafabre. Lafabre is a French priest that's been going around the United States renting holiday inns uh, where, he, where he says mass in Latin. And, 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 he doesn't have a shortage of crowds. The whole ton of people say, wait, 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 we want to go back to the original church. Um, I, I lived uh, while I was at seminary uh, in, a, in a congregation in a, in a neighborhood that had a congregation in St. Paul called Holy Childhood. And you know what Holy Child? Sure you do. And, and the other one was St. Agnes. Those two congregations still offer Latin masses. And the way they do it is interesting. Um, 
they do it under a, an, a, they call themselves an association of the preservation of classic mass. Mm-hmm. And so they bring in musicians to do classical mass, and then they can pull it off at night. But people come there, I mean, they love it. But you don't understand, they don't need to understand. You know? <laughs> still this whole notion of being in the presence of something that's going on. Well, uh, I just before you, uh, some of the abuses, um, the, the wedding of church and state, sainthood, which we've experienced, our definition of sainthood is certainly different than Roman Catholics. Uh, Roman Catholic abuses, of course, uh, once again, uh, if, if we want to, uh, if we want to make Marie uh, a saint, your sainthood, I don't know why we would want to do that. <laughs> okay, let's say we did. Uh, we, could, we could raise certain money by doing that. You know? uh, all we need to do is to find out that if you perform something called a miracle, and, and if we can find out that you've lived an extraordinary life of faith, uh, and, and we accompany that with some donations, uh, we could be could be fun. Yeah. And so I like the Lutheran thing a little better because now you are just simply St. Marie um, as a result of the baptism. And that's a dramatic change because even sainthood was for sale. I mean, everything's for sale. So that's one of the major changes. Uh, you can see then, before we get to next week, uh, the Counter-Reformation and an economic dimension to it. You know, what Luther did was, in one sense, began to destroy a whole instru- uh, uh, economic program. Well, no one gives up their wallet easily, you know, and, uh, and that's still going on today. So, uh, okay, next week then, we're going to move uh, from... Uh, yeah, yeah, please. Do you think the Roman Catholic Church will ever allow priests to marry? Yes. They will. I think yes. So. In my lifetime, no, but it's going to happen. Well, there's a thing in the paper recently. In the Amazon, the the, the Pope is now opening a a married clergy in the Amazon. Why? They don't have any priests. I mean, you can only consolidate congregations so many times. And, And that's exactly what's happening. So you have a if you go down the interstate uh, by Osseo, off to the left, you'll see a wonderful building oh. here. That's a uh, pinnacle. Mm-hmm. That's the result of three congregations that the bishop merged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and remember, the bishop can do it, because he owns the property. But that means the three congregations, he, he would have had to have three priests, now he needs one. So you're going to see mergers after mergers until eventually you run out. You can only bring in so many Filipino and so many African priests. And, and, and that's what's been happening. So you have, when you had next door, you had priests barely spoke English. Um, there, was a, there was a congregation in Eau Claire. The priest there, the, people couldn't say his name, so he became Father Bumbo. <laughs> because nobody could pronounce his name. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, do I think so? Yeah. I don't think. I think that will be a step before women. I, th- I think so. I'm not sure of that, but I think so. Although in in some places, 
Well, in some places, women are doing just about everything as the acronym. Say, oh, by the way, we're not immune from that. We're experiencing a severe shortage of clergy here, Lutherans, um, especially in our rural areas, and especially, for example, in the Dakotas, Wyoming, and we, we, we've got to come to our senses and wonder, okay, what can we do? And I, I think the answer is somewhat simple. Uh, we've got to make it economically possible for our brightest and best people to go to seminary. And, and, and we don't now, because young people are coming out of college with how much debt? About $19,000 average. If they're married, it's $38,000 debt. And mobility, I mean, it's a two-income deal these days. So we have to provide deep ways for for spouses to be more flexible. Dave? I just had a conversation yesterday about that. Um, you know, the, the debt issue, the education debt issue is one thing. Yeah. The other thing is calls to rural congregations are difficult to find because the spouse That's right. can't find employment. That's right. Uh, I, 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 I one time suggested, and I it wasn't facetious, that we're sitting on, how much how much money are congregations sitting on in endowments and foundations? And if you ask them why you're sitting on that, they'll say, well, it's our rainy day fund. And I say, Rainy day, hell, oh, it's storming outside. <laughs> you know, let's let's use that and let's use it to, for for example, let's use it to educate the best we can find. Are we seeing more women in ministry than men right now? Is it equal? What? Uh, where are the young men or middle-aged men who choose? Well, I, besides yeah. death. I don't know what the population is right now. I know when I was teaching, it was approaching 50%. I, I don't know where it is right now. David, you might have a better hand on that than I do. I, I know that dental school is over 50% women now. Medical school is over 50% women. Now, it, my, my wife thinks that women are just simply excelling academically. And I think she's I have I, I've taught an honors class for a number of years. I had 24 students last time. I had 22 women, one man or two men. Mm -hmm. This year I had 24 women, no, excuse me, 23 women and one man. Mm -hmm. When my husband graduated from law school yeah. at the University of Minnesota, there were two women. When I graduated from seminary, we had two women. We, we didn't even have women's rooms, you know. <laughs> we, never, we had masking tape on the men's room's door saying ladies. <laughs> we just didn't, you know, we didn't have that. And that's, 
But I, I think, Steve, we're, the Lutheran Church is in dire straits if we don't want to recognize it. Right. And we're sitting on piles of money, if you think about it. I mean, I look at Grace Lutheran and all that, but they have $62 million. No, that's terrible. That's a lot of money. You could pay for a lot of tuition for that. With a little piece, just the interest. Yeah, David? With just another example of change, I don't know if you saw the letter from Robert Stanky yes. recently. Yeah. With the research yeah, that it said uh, going downhill. 2017, the average worship attendance churchwide was 899,000. Yeah. By 2030, the average worship attendance will be 60,000. Wow. So, why do you think that is? I think the church uh, is in a period of culture, not uh, the culture, not thinking the church is important. My kids do. Yeah. I mean, I'm honest about that. My kids tolerate it if I ask them to do something because I don't care for me. They'd probably show up. But they wouldn't come voluntarily. Maybe Christmas they'll come. We all want to go. But, but I also think one other thing, David. Um, whatever congregations are doing now uh, by by their anti-liturgical thing, by you know the whole the whole whatever's going on, somebody ought to look around and say, "Hey, this isn't working." <laughs> you know, you know, sort of like people that watch videos of football games thinking this time we'll win. Well. Somebody ought to figure out it's not working. Yeah. I experienced yeah. I experienced sheer chaos yeah. last Sunday at a at a congregation that had abandoned the liturgy. What well, was the last liturgy? At least had some sense of order mm -hmm. and teachability. Yeah. Uh, but but I'm, I show myself as a fossil. What's this piece of church doing all clear? My kids go there, and they seem to be really successful membership and attendance, and probably financially too. I, I don't know. I mean, what are they doing? Yeah, well, they've been doing it for a long, long time, Steve. It's not like they're doing it now. Right. They had a guy named Mark Schultz, and Mark's still around. First of all, they offered a variety of an enormous variety of style. They offered services that people were looking for. Okay. Uh, here. Uh, everything from diet classes, yoga. Lots of counseling. Everything. Counseling. And professional people. Yeah. 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 A huge staff. And they have programming. At, they do yeah. programming after school. They have a high school program there that's just absolutely beautiful. The kids want to be there. Trinity Lutheran had a. A Christian education program that I mean, it rivaled in numbers mm -hmm. many, many communities. And the head of that was almost a superintendent of schools, a woman named Mary Schenken. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh. Very good. So, we ought to talk about this someplace. Yeah. I think yeah. we have to do that. You've been patient. This is painful. Thank you very much. Thank you.